Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy magazine. Welcome to Global Reboot. This is a show where we examine one big global problem every episode and look at ways to solve it. This week, we're looking at press freedom. If you think about it, we are inundated with information. Content, news, social media, it is everywhere. On our phones, on our screens, on the TV, on radio and in print. And it's coming to us faster than ever before in the history of the world. All the stuff, everywhere, as it happens, when it happens. But there's a problem here. Mixed into this constant stream of information is a fair bit of misinformation. That's when someone unintentionally gets us the wrong facts. There's also increasingly another problem, disinformation. That is the malign intentional spreading of misinformation, and it's something that a growing number of organizations, even governments, are investing in. Amid all of this, the role of journalists has become more fraught. More than ever before, reporters are caught in the crossfire, accused of being enemies of the state and purveyors of fake news. Trust in the media has declined. And financial models of journalism are more precarious than ever before. The old school ways of advertising have largely collapsed, first because of the internet, and then because tech companies have taken away the lion's share of digital dollars. All of this poses a problem. Journalists are competing to be heard amid mis- and disinformation. They're more imperiled than ever before, and they now lack the resources with which to do their jobs. What can be done? My guest this week has answers. Maria Ressa is, like me, a former TV journalist. When she left CNN, she worked for a giant media company in the Philippines, and then she started her own media organization, Rappler, which rapidly became a major player in the digital news space in her country. Ressa has faced unprecedented hurdles. She's been arrested more than 10 times in the last two years. Earlier this month, the Filipino government ordered Rappler to shut down. She appealed, lost that appeal, but continues to vow to fight back. When I caught her, A final ruling had yet to be issued, but I asked her what she'd do if they did shut her down, and her answer was clear. They'll keep speaking truth to power. Ressa is an inspirational media leader. She won the Nobel Peace Prize last year for her courage and convictions. She's also full of ideas for how to fix journalism and defeat misinformation. My apologies in advance for the sound quality on this one. We caught her at a very busy and tricky moment in Manila, but we wanted to make sure we could tape given everything that's on her plate right now. Global Reboot is brought to you in partnership with the Doha Forum. As always, leave us your comments and feedback and rate the show. Let's dive in now. Maria, welcome to the show. Good to see you again, Ravi. So let's start with the here and now. It's been, you know, six years since Rodrigo Duterte came to power, promising to tackle poverty and corruption in the Philippines. His term recently ended, but he's remained a widely popular leader. As our readers know, his daughter was just elected vice president. All of this, despite all the sexual abuse, human rights violations, allegations against him. He also ordered a violent crackdown on drugs that left tens of thousands of Filipinos dead. But Duterte wasn't only at war with the drug cartels, he was also at war with the press. He shut down the country's biggest broadcaster, 
Uh, critics have been jailed. Maria, you yourself have faced relentless attacks and Duterte ordered your media company Rappler to be shut down for violating, allegedly violating foreign ownership rules. I know this case is ongoing, but catch us up to speed. Where do things stand right now? Uh, where do I begin? Uh, in less than two years, I've received 10 arrest warrants, right? And, uh, and just two days before the end of the Duterte administration, the SEC, like the, like the US SEC, issued what is essentially a shutdown order. Imagine two days before the outgoing administration, they issue a shutdown order, which means technically, Authorities now under the Marcos administration could shut Rappler down. You know, having said that, here's the good news. We survived the Duterte administration. It is asymmetrical warfare. We're a very small group, but, you know, holding power to account actually does have its costs. But we as journalists, we held the line, Rob. You know, we did what we were supposed to do. Now we ask the Marcos administration to restore rule of law. These charges are political. It is the very first time ever in the history of the Philippines, that the SEC has moved this way, this quickly against a news organization. Like in the United States, journalists are protected under the Bill of Rights. So these attacks against press freedom, we need to call them out. Hmm. I, and just so we all understand, why is the government trying to shut Rappler down? I think this is, you know, something that, that began in 2016. It's this kind of you know, death by a thousand cuts, intimidation tactics. Uh, the way the government, the old administration had gone after journalists was through the business. And this is exactly what's happening to us. But the difference with Rappler is that we're journalists, right? In our shareholders agreement, there's actually a clause that gives not just editorial decisions to the journalists, but the business decisions. Mm -hmm. So we've really taken a hardline position. You move against freedom of the press, we will call out every single minute cut. It's death by a thousand cuts of democracy. Mm. And they just make it harder and harder for you to do your job. I have to ask you, what happens if they do shut Rappler down? What, what recourse do you have? How will you respond? We will always comply with the law, which is why I always say rule of law, right? But what's happened is that the SEC, a minor regulatory agency, has said this is a shutdown order. And then they quote, wrong case studies at the Supreme Court saying that this is done. But in the meantime, who will win, right? And this becomes a case of leadership. Will the SEC move to shut us down despite, right? Despite the fact that there is still legal recourse. One part can say, yes, they can. The other part says rule of law and freedom of the press. So who wins in this? That's where we want leadership from the Marcos administration. But then having said that, what does that mean for an organization like us? <laughs> um, I laugh because that's the only um, response possible in these circumstances. It's like you live breaking news. You know, you, mm. you set plans in place, you drill scenarios, you think of your worst case scenarios, and then you prepare for it. And we're ready. Whatever happens next. We will do our jobs and we will continue to hold the line. As you should, and, and the world is rooting for you. Duterte, for example, is a familiar figure, I think, for much of the world. Um, we know less about the current administration, which came to power last month. I mentioned Sarah Duterte. She's the new vice president. President, uh, as you mentioned, Bongbong Marcos, the son of a former dictator. How different is this new administration from 
uh, the Duterte administration? We actually know a lot about the Marcos, about the Marcoses, right? I mean, when I began as a journalist in 1986, one of my first assignments for CNN was to go to Hawaii and interview Imelda Marcos. Uh, I've known brother and sister, Aimee and Ferdinand Marcos Jr. For years, they came back in 1991. I was one of the first interviews that Ferdinand Marcos Jr. gave, right? It's really important to point out, this is the only son and namesake mm. of Ferdinand Marcos. And to actually have him be overwhelmingly elected, democratically elected, shows you what is wrong with the system. And that's the world we live in today. So. What do we know about the Marcoses? In 1986, a People Power Revolt ousted Ferdinand Marcos, the father, Imelda, and Ferdinand were accused of stealing 10 billion US dollars in 1986 dollars. In the last 36 years, less than 4 billion of that 10 billion has returned. And I guess the best show of good faith and good governance would be for this Marcos administration to get the rest of the $6 billion, you know, will that happen? Well, it would definitely be a show of good faith. Having said that, we know that Ferdinand Marcos Jr. ran his campaign, excluding tough questions from journalists, avoiding debates where he must uh, answer questions, mm. traveling, this own coterie, uh, closed in bloggers and vloggers, people who he can control, who you can say is propaganda, right? So that's how he got elected. Uh, I will say, you know, it's still early, except despite what is happening to us, I will give the benefit of the doubt for concrete actions. And perhaps one of the first steps he could take is to take us out of this limbo and realize that the free press is a government's ally during times like this where people need to know what the facts are. Maria, I want to now get to some of the topics that we promised to focus on for Global Reboot, the podcast, and that is specifically press freedom. Before we get to the general topic, I want to hear about your own experience. How did you start Rappler? The idea for Rappler actually grew out of our work in ABS-CBN, the largest broadcasting network in the Philippines. It's the largest news group. I managed about a thousand journalists in those six years I headed that wow. news group. The reach, both in terms of influence and reach, literally was global for ABS-CBN. Mm. In terms of managing it, I realized when I came in that traditional news organizations, you manage them for efficiency, right? Mm. But the new world, this new world of the internet is about innovation and efficiency doesn't necessarily equal innovation. So by 2010, I realized that it may be time to look at the internet on its own because traditional legacy news organizations tended to put the people who were weaker on the internet because it didn't have a revenue stream to support mm -hmm. it. And right. you put your top performers on your prime time newscast. Well, we thought social media that the internet was the future. I looked at, strangely enough, Ravi, it was the research I had done on terrorism and how that virulent ideology spreads mm. and how when you put it online, it spreads four times faster, mm. right? So if terrorists can use this, why can't the forces for good use this? And that was the idea behind Rappler. You know, it was to build communities of action and the food we feed our communities is journalism. That's amazing. And, and of course, the backdrop to all of this is 
you know, the internet is taking off in the Philippines, you know, and across Southeast Asia, as much of it is mobile first, smartphone first, um, people Correct. discovering the internet on their smartphones, which are also, you know, for most people, their first radios, their first maps, their first so many other things, their first GPS devices. As you sort of built this thing up from scratch, you know, I imagine you faced many challenges, one of which was, how do we stay free and fair? How did you think through that problem as you begin something, you're training, you're putting in place practices? I know you began to face pressure from the government later, but just in terms of ethics, how did you build that up? First, let me say at the beginning, it was the challenges of a startup, which is different from corporate mm, media, right? right? We were far more agile because, you know, let's just say a large news organization will take six months from idea to execution. We could execute in a week. And that's right. in a time of drastic, quick change. That is a massive right. advantage. So you have to look at this in the context of the Philippines, because as of January 2021, Filipinos for six years in a row have spent the most time online and on social media globally. So think about us like Drosophila flies. You know, you, you experiment quickly. You can see the change. You can see the impact. That's still the same way. This is part of the reason we were also among the first to see what disinformation does, what information operations does mm -hmm. at scale. In 2016, that was when we raised the alarm. We came out with a weaponization of the internet, a three-part series. That series was what got us attacked online. And that's when the first cases, President Duterte's attack happened in 2017. I have to uh, ask, what, what was that first attack from someone so powerful? What was that like? How did you react? He mentioned us in July 2017 in his State of the Nation address. And we were live because we function like a television news organization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as soon as he said that, I immediately just tweeted, uh, Mr. President, you're wrong. He said rappers is owned by Americans. But within about a week or so, we got our first subpoena. So you can see how this is connected, right? Mm -hmm. the, were you scared? Oh, my gosh, Ravi, I don't think scared is the right word. You could say I'd spent my career in the gym. I had written and or help write for standards and ethics manuals. We created Rapport from scratch, right? So we had a wealth of experience. So scared isn't the right word. I think more disbelief mm. because we were really at the forefront of knowing how the world was changing. Because you know, the first time I was arrested, for example, it's, it's always about the failure of imagination. I would never have, I didn't expect to be arrested that these, like I expected that these ridiculous cases would be thrown away by the city prosecutor. Oh, that didn't happen. I was like, okay, well, the world is new, but what's our weapon of choice? Journalism, shine the light, demand accountability. And then what, what power does is inundate with so many details that our community can't keep track of it. I, I am the, the target of these 10 cases. I barely remember what they are. And then here's the last brilliant part. They simplify it to a point where, in the case of me, journalism equals criminal. They get me, then they spread that out to all Filipino journalists, right? And it's hammering. Enemy of there was the a point in time, enemy of the people. You know this. The United States is going through this 
I worry about the United States. And when we map the United States on social media, it's actually significantly worse than the Philippines. Gosh, you know, what you're describing, all of these problems, there's misinformation, disinformation, politics, systems that let you down. You use the word disbelief because at each step, you're like, oh my gosh, is this actually happening? Could this happen? And it is, and it does to you, of course, but also to journalists around the world, not to the same degree, but the media is under attack everywhere. So I guess I want to push us a little bit now towards discussing solutions. How do we fix this? And I've thought about this for the last two years. You know, the COVID lockdown really showed me, A, how exhausted I was, um, Mm. but how prepared we were, right? So that's the other part, because in January 2018, when the government tried to shut us down, they also made calls. Within four months, we lost 49% of our advertising revenue. And I think in a government playbook, if you do that, then you will be bankrupt. So we should have closed shop by the end of 2018. But what happened was that we were forced to find another sustainable business model that has allowed us to actually grow. So during the pandemic, while news organizations were cutting people or doing layoffs, Rappler was hiring, right? So I guess what I'm saying is that in many ways, thank you. The government's attacks on us made us stronger and able to weather and able to grow. So foreign policy, uh, the magazine I run, is a subscription-based model. And we found that that allows us to, you know, or to not depend on sponsorship and advertising in the same way. Uh, I should point out Global Reboot, of course, has a partner. But what have you found to be the best ways to, to monetize media, which after all, is something that is necessary for journalists to eat and have roofs over their heads. Not advertising, especially not the way tech has driven advertising, which is the kind of micro-targeting that is frankly insidiously manipulative. Mm. As a person and as a journalist, we don't do these things, right? We're transparent about it. We should move away from the surveillance capitalism model of big tech. It is unethical. And ultimately, I hope we have to build these laws, data privacy, it's user safety, it's antitrust. And then that content moderation is a small one, because if you have all those others, then there's some protection. So right now, in many ways, foreign policy by being a, a reader revenue model stays out of it. But if you're using advertising in the same way, then we are playing into the surveillance capitalism model. Mm. This is my greatest fear, is that it's the tech platforms that prioritize lies that will determine what journalism gets the widest distribution, meaning it it will be the crappiest journalism, and what news organizations will survive. We have got to find something new. So the solutions then. All right, what is the solution? Long-term is education, for sure. People will call it media literacy. I think we're beyond that. This is behavior modification at scale, which the technology allows, right? I think we should get to a point where this cell phone with these social media platforms may be like alcohol or cigarettes. They should have an age where you can have this. I know that's probably not popular to say, but anyway, education. Medium-term, legislation. Legislation, why does impunity reign online? 
We know, for example, as early as the Mueller report, what happened, that 126 million Americans were targeted, that it wasn't about trying to get them to believe anything, but getting them to distrust everything. We know this. No one has been held accountable. Right. So this has happened in the United States. Finally, let's go to the short term. And this is something that we we were forced to do because we had elections May 9th this year. You need a whole of society approach to determine what civic engagement looks like in the age of exponential propaganda, when there is no shared space, when people question the facts, when the very platforms that deliver news and facts to you actually prioritize the spread of lies. I mean, this is a difficult thing. So that means news organizations at the very bottom layer, the foundational layer, fact checks, fact checks, statistically, they don't spread as fast as the lies, but 16 news organizations in the Philippines working together, that's a first. Layer two is civil society, NGOs, human rights groups, environmental groups, business groups, the church coming together to share these fact checks, to tell people these lies are coming for them. But they share it, unlike journalists, they share it with emotion. The last layer is the most important one law, accountability. And lawyers have been quiet for far too long, right? So left, right, and center, legal organizations in the Philippines came together. And what they did is they protected the journalist layer by filing tactical litigation, but as also strategic litigation. It's a really great set of pieces of advice. And and I love the long-term, medium-term, short-term approach. But, you know, Maria, I have to I have to say this, a lot of what you're describing, you know, there's sort of the broad theory of it, but there's also the personal energy and bravery that you bring to it. And, and I think, you know, when you relate these things, it is so applicable to journalists in many other countries. For journalists who, for editors and publishers who are being attacked by their governments, what is the advice you have for them? You said earlier you weren't scared. Some people are scared, and, and that also is understandable. What do they do? How do they respond? How do they fight back? How do they strengthen themselves? Embrace your fear. Right? That's the, that, that is a lesson I learned really young. But part of it is how do you strengthen yourselves? Breaking news is the, the framework I look at everything from. When it is uncertain, when you don't know where the threat is coming from, you prepare for the worst, right? Because if you're ready for the worst, then you've already prepared both mentally, physically, and intellectually for anything else that leads you to the worst. Then the second is build your team. You have to make sure that your team understands what it is. And, you know, here's what happened when the government attacked us. Rappers are self-selective. All of the friction Mm -hmm. of a normal news organization kind of like fell away. And the mission It is mission driven in the purest sense. And at a certain point, like in 2018, when the government tried to revoke our license, I actually held a GA where I said, all right, we're moving to another phase. And, you know, the median age in rappers, 23 years old, so we're very young, Mm. right? So so I said, I know some of your parents are not going to like this. If you don't want to be here, please just let us know and we will help you find another job. No one from editorial took that. And in fact, we had more people I think do not underestimate that people understand the problem. So those two big ones, prepare for the worst, between embrace your fear and communicate it with your entire organization, because that itself is a source of inspiration and power. And then the second thing is 
build your community. I don't think Rappler, aside from Rapplers themselves, it's also our community that allowed us to survive the six years of Duterte. Courage spreads in the same way that fear spreads. And yeah, it can be debilitating, but when you have your community with you, it's significant. We don't want to look back a decade from now and have regrets about what we've done. If the world moves to fascism, which Ravi, you know, this is where it's headed, right? Well, when, if, when that happens, I will know we will have done everything we can, not just as journalists, but as citizens of a democracy. That's what gives me a lot of courage. I can see the manipulation. The data shows it. And here's the last part for journalists. We need to embrace technology. We need to understand data. This is transforming the world. You know, we don't have an internet of public interest. Mm -hmm. There is no internet that protects facts, that protects its users right now. The old world we knew is gone. Embrace that. If you know that, then what is this new world we're creating? And that was Maria Ressa, the CEO and founder of Rappler and a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. We have a Q&A transcript of this interview on our website, as well as a longer interview on video. That's on foreignpolicy.com. Next week, how to solve the food crisis. We fail when we do not provide the adequate tools that are necessary for all of the farmers to maximize their productive capacity. If we embrace what the science and the innovation have provided us, we can feed every person on this planet. That's Ertherin Cousin, a former executive director of the UN's World Food Program. For years now, she has been thinking about how to make sure nobody goes hungry amid a dire global food crisis, rampant inflation. You will not want to miss her ideas. That is next week on Global Reboot. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Dan Efron, and Anissa Pazeski. A special thanks also to Tal Alroy from FP Live for her help with this interview. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in smart geopolitical news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing to Foreign Policy. Global Reboot listeners can save 15% on FP access. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe, enter the code REBOOT at checkout to claim this offer. Thanks for listening. I'm Ravi Agrawal. See you next week.